You're listening to an Englishman in the Balkans. Welcome to an Englishman in the Balkans podcast with me, David Pecinovic Bailey. In this podcast, you'll get a unique look at life in Bosnia and Herzegovina through my eyes, the eyes of an immigrant. Each episode, I share my experiences living in this often misunderstood country and introduce you to some of the interesting people I've met along the way. From exploring the rich culture and history to discussing the challenges and joys of immigrating to a new country, this podcast offers a thoughtful and engaging look at life in the Western Balkans. listening to the Living in Bosnia and Herzegovina podcast. It's the Living in Bosnia and Herzegovina podcast and for people that follow the podcast you'll know that I like to talk about being a foreigner in Bosnia and Herzegovina um, today in the, uh, well we started in the late 20th century and now we've entered the 21st century um, and how I view my life, my daily experiences and everything else. Um, and over the past months, definitely quite a few months, um, I've been interacting with another Brit who's not here in the Balkans, but he's back in Bromley in Kent, um, not a million miles away from me in West London, where I was born, actually. Um, his name is Martin Gannon. Uh, and Martin and I have something really, really in common, and that is that 40 years ago, Martin was trailblazing, blazing, being a, a Brit in another country then, the country that came before the one that I'm living in at the moment, Yugoslavia. And history has told us that Yugoslavia has broken up into six countries. Now, by pure coincidence, two or three days ago, I read an article about what it was like living in a single party state. And that state was Yugoslavia. So today on the podcast, I am joined. We hope that the line will keep up. It's horrible weather here, so maybe we'll get a power cut, but whatever, we'll get through it. Um, Martin Gannon in Bromley. Martin, first of all, when did you come to the former Yugoslavia? We won't call it the former Yugoslavia. We'll just call it Yugoslavia. When did you come to Yugoslavia and why? The reason I came to to Yugoslavia was I was treating my mother to a holiday. Um, she wanted to go to Mallorca, but at the time in 1980, you had to go to a travel agent to book your holiday. There wasn't all this internet stuff and everything. So went to the travel agent and they said, sorry, it's full up, but there's this place called Yugoslavia. So, okay, well, we'll go there then. So we went on holiday to a place called Rabatz in Istria. And at the time, I was a manager of a bingo club in Peckham, top rank club, part of the rank organisation. So while on holiday, my mother was chatting to another holiday rep, not our one from Yuga Tours. And um, she said, I'm, well, I'm having to cancel the bingo night. So as mothers do, she volunteered me to do it for her. And uh, then when I did it, all the clients said they'd had a great time. So the holiday rep turned out not to just be a rep, but the area manager 
for Saga and offered me a job. And that's how I started. So a couple of weeks later, I was in Porech at the Hotel Matarada looking after Saga clients. What was the perception of Yugoslavia back in there in those days for for British people? Was it? I mean, it wasn't, or was it maybe, a top tourist destination back then? Yes, it was. It was uh, the, the, pretty much the number one destination uh, for holidaymakers uh, from the UK. Saga holidays, in fact, had people there pretty much all year round um, staying in the hotels because it was cheaper to stay in the hotel than to uh, have your gas and electricity on in England. And you got fed, watered and excursions. So, yes, it was it was basic, it, but it was nice. It was not, they weren't luxury, but um, it was very comfortable. I was about to say the difference between, yes, we'll call it a socially managed state, socialist state, communist state, and what we were experiencing back in the 1980s must have been a bit like chalk and cheese. What were your first impressions, though, when when you arrived to meet local people for the first time and eat local food? Oh, well, I was delighted. Um, though I was mostly working in the hotel then, in the 1980s, because don't, don't forget, in 1980, Tito had just died. So there was quite a sort of... A, a sort of a nervousness, worry, what, what was the future? Because he'd run the country for so long. Um, the new system, but he'd actually planned and set up a system for people to, to take over. So people were a little nervous, but they were, they were happy to see tourists and happy that they were working. Uh, to understand, it was a self-management system. So everybody had a job and... If you spent money in the hotel, the staff would would be getting the money as well. So, you know, it was it was quite a good system. It was different from the communist system, which years later I ended up in. You know, when you arrived, were there did you have to worry about language problems, or or was it an isolation within the the hotel when you started off? Because I mean, when I came <laughs> here, I was shocked by the language, not because, I mean, it, it just sounded something like I'd never heard before. I thought it was a Russian sounding language and long words and always spoken in a very, I don't mean to be denigrating to any Italians that are listening to this, but very, very emotional, very Latin. So communication problems to start off with as the young Martin sets foot in Southeast Europe. No, no, in Porridge especially, um, they were well, all the waiters, management, even the police spoke English. Um, now, why I mentioned the police is because I actually did a lot of excursions to Venice from Porridge by coach. And I used to take quite a few um, Yugoslavs with me. And the police spoke to me, uh, warning me that the actual passport was very valuable and to look after my any Yugoslavs that went with me. So, um, no, they, they spoke to me in English. I had no problems in communicating. And when I went in for my work permit into the police station, they were very friendly and helpful and told me not to worry about it in the future. They knew where I was. So there were no problems. Was it difficult, uh, a process, to get 
you know, uh, a residency visa. And I ask that because um, today, for, for a foreigner here, one, it's not easy just by asking, I'd like to stay and live in Bosnia-Herzegovina. There are rules now. You either have to be married to a citizen or be in a long-term relationship with a citizen. And I do believe if you've purchased property here, you're entitled to apply for a residency permit. But I, I, I speak from just my own personal experience. Apart from that, it's it, there's not a route to getting a residency or a long-term visa. Was it the same for you then? Or, or as you said, the police were very helpful and, and guided you through it? Well, um, for myself, because I was working and I was taking part in tourism, which was important, there were no difficulties for me to stay in the country. I could stay six, eight months or even longer if I wanted. And as long as I recorded my stay with the police and they, they, they knew where I was. So, and the fact that I'd be working in the tourism, attracting tourists. So that aspect of it, they were fine with me. There was there were no problems whatsoever. You said that you you arrived in Poritz. Um Is that where you stayed, or did you move somewhere else uh, for, for the most of your time that you spent here? No, I I started off in Porich, and then around December moved to Vienna for Saga again, and then from Vienna I was taking American tourists all the way down to Dubrovnik and then into Montenegro. So going down through Zagreb, Plitvica, and all the way down. But So I was doing coach tours, and, and I would mainly do that during the winter months, incredibly, even through the snow. And then again, um, when April came, and more of the Saga clients came, I would go, uh, the next season I went to Ravine, and then the following season I was actually in Rabats again. So... I moved around some of the seasons, but during the winter times, for three years, I did coach tours through the, the whole of the former Yugoslavia. So uh, I learned a lot of the roads, the routes, um, had some exciting adventures with my coach drivers, and uh, <laughs> yeah, they, were, they were an incredible time. The places that you're mentioning are in today's Croatia, uh, along that wonderful uh, Adriatic coast. Um, did the job give you any opportunities to venture further afield, possibly into Bosnia and Herzegovina, down into Montenegro, uh, or across uh, into Serbia at all? Yes, yes. Uh, some of the coach tours did were into Montenegro, or down to Lake Okrid. Um, each of the different coach tours were were different areas. So sometimes I'd go and pick up my passengers in Zagreb, and sometimes it would be from Vienna. But um, it, it fluctuated every every few weeks. Uh, I would get a list of where I was going and then um, head off. But the, the company, the two companies used were General Tourist and um, Atlas, so uh, two old names. And also we worked a bit with Putnik from Serbia as well. So that was... It was a nice mixture of agents and, and people. We've been chatting um, uh, via email, and um, this morning uh, I rushed out of the office here, even though it's raining, to look up in the sky uh, and to see um, the tw one of the twice weekly flights from Belgrade coming into Banja Luka Airport here. And we have now some 14, maybe 16 now, um, destinations. But I looked up 
uh, and there was this old uh, Antonov uh, twin prop uh, aircraft coming in, uh, carrying the logo of Air Serbia. Obviously, the, uh, the each each country now has its own um, uh, airline, except Bosnia. Yeah, Bosnia doesn't have its own at the moment. However, uh, I thought I'm going to be well. Martin said something about Yat, uh, the airline of the former Yugoslavia, which was held in, in high esteem across the world. Uh, what's your memories of, yes. of being involved with Yat? Well, again, um, from uh, 1983, I left uh, Saga uh, to join a small company called Pilgrim Holidays. And there I began working on the Dalmatian Islands, especially Hoa and Starigrad. After that, I then went to work for Inex Adria, stroke Phoenix, which was the Slovenian airline and Croatian-Serbian tour operator. And then after that, went to work for Intersun in Gibraltar and a few other places. And from there, I got headhunted to Yugoslav Airlines um, and began working for them in London and Belgrade. And uh, that was, I, I was then, Yugoslav Airlines had bought the little company Pilgrim Holidays as their sort of tour operator wing. So I became operations manager, sales manager, a bit of everything, pr- promoting tourism uh, in former Yugoslavia and in also in the summer, but also I was pushing heavily for um, operations in the winter. Because at that time, Yugoslav Airlines was very big. It had flights to India, uh, Delhi, uh, New York, uh, China, Peking, uh, Australia. So we had lots of flights all around the world. And we had a big lot of passengers that I could utilise to give them short breaks or, or long breaks, all sorts of things. But one of the things that I very much developed was in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And, of course, that was uh, Medjugorje. And one of the things that wound me up was that a lot of uh, pilgrimage companies charged enormous sums of money to take pilgrims to a pilgrimage site. And I knew the costings of a holiday, of a break. So I remember going in talking to Mr. Valchich, my director, who was from Mostar, and saying, showing him my idea. The next day, we flew to Belgrade and put it forward to the committee, because in those days, a self-management company, you had to put it to a group of the workers. And if they liked the idea, then they would do it. Well, they liked my idea. And so we began operations from Heathrow to Mostar Airport, uh, bringing in literally thousands of pilgrims at a much cheaper rate than all the other tour operators, causing them to go out of business, leave the area. And we pretty much, we pretty much monopolised the, um, uh, the tourists from, from the UK to Medjugorje. That's amazing when you consider that Medjugorje is a pilgrimage site for, in the main, Roman Catholics, and Yugoslavia at the time was a, and I'll put this in heavy quotation marks, socialist uh, slash atheist country. How did the, how did the committee uh, react to that? Because from what I'm led to believe, to become a member of the party, for example, 
a, a strong religious affiliation was undesirable, if we put it that way. Yes, it, the whole point of, of, of it, what I was trying to show, was that I would undercut the other operators on the route. Therefore, there would be, a, uh, the, for the airline and for the pilgrim holidays, which were part of the airline, they would be very profitable operation. And the operation was planned originally for a DC-9 to go on the route. But there were so many bookings, we had to put a 727 on the route every Friday and every Monday. So it worked. And they were very happy that it was making money. And that, you know, Yugoslav Airlines at the time was a very forward company. Um, it was very profitable. And all the staff uh, at the end of the year would get a share of the profits. So if there was anything that looked like it was going to make money, people were interested in doing it. I want to come along in a minute to talk about uh, your views uh, on tourism now compared to back then, uh, because I just read a very, very interesting interview that you had with uh, Total Croatia News. Um, but before we go that, to there. I've got three questions to ask you. They're all on the fly. I hope I'm not going to catch you out. So the first one is, at, back <laughs> then, back then, what was your favourite place in the whole country that you love so much? Ah, oh, that's cruel. Uh, <laughs> um, well, to explain, uh, when I worked on Hua, my, my parents, my father had had um, TB when he was younger. Now, in the Yugoslav times, and the Hoa town was a clinic, a specialist clinic for TB and other um, uh, sort of chest complaints, asthmas, anything like that. And the reason for it was the island is renowned for helping the health. So when they went there, my dad would feel 10 years younger. So that was it. They they've moved and lived there. First, they lived in Chitluk in Bosnia-Herzegovina, but uh, they had to move from there, and they moved um, uh, to Yelsa on the island of Hoa, which is an absolutely gorgeous little place. And um, they they had a lovely life there for 10, 11 years. So um, it's, that is one of my favourite places, and Starigrad, um, which is just nearby Yelsa. Uh, but, um, and, of course, across the country, Zagreb's beautiful. I love going to Belgrade. Love going up to Kaponik, um, Mostar, love Mostar. So ah, there's so many places around the whole country that I still in, would love to go to see and be in again. Second question is another favourite. Favourite food when you used to go out? Uh, Chavapchichi, Pleskovica, Muchkalitsa, um, fresh fish, um, the, the Sama. Oh, there's so much. I can... I could stay here for the next two hours telling you things. And finally, because we're going to take a, a short musical break, if this works out, back then in the 1980s, um, unless I've got this wrong, I don't think there was too much Western music playing. Maybe I've got that wrong. But it was the heyday of what is now referred to as XYU rock. What was your favourite piece of music at that time? Oh, dear me. I love quite a few different groups, but there was plenty of Western music. Oh, my gosh. Because there is a, I can remember dancing some nights away in Rovin in the nightclubs to 
some very dodgy music. But anyway, um, to be honest with you, I can't remember so much. I was a bit young and, and a bit wild in those days and rather enjoyed the sliver of it too much, I think. OK, so I'll choose one piece of music for you and we'll be back after this. You're listening to the Living in Bosnia and Herzegovina podcast.
You're listening to the Living in Bosnia and Herzegovina podcast. So we're back. Uh, Martin Gannon's in Bromley in Kent. For those that are listening uh, and have no idea of UK um, geography, it's a little bit that sticks out towards Dover and then there's a little bit of water between us and our nearest um, European neighbours, um, France. But it's Kent is where Martin is um, today. A lot has happened recently here and by recently, you know, 25 years ago was the end of the conflict uh, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, which I think put the nail in the coffin for the breakup of the country that you knew originally as Yugoslavia. And a lot has changed in so many respects. Before COVID, did you come back a lot and, and see how things had changed? And what were your reactions to what you saw? I, I was coming back um from well actually i never stopped coming back i was uh in on yeltsa in yeltsa on hua a few times even during the war and visiting my parents who were still there and i was also uh in split and um doing a few things there in split as well with the interestingly enough with the british army but um after that during the 90s i helped join a, a small company that was restarting pilgrimages from the UK. Uh, that was about 94, 95. And uh, we had one plane and we were on a charter route from Gatwick to Split and then coaching people up to Medjugorje. And, and again, it was starting to work and starting to build up. But our ultimate was to increase the holiday tourism along the coast. But unfortunately, a new pope, which has completely gone out of my head, came in to power and suddenly decreed that no pilgrimages could be led by priests or bishops to Medjugorje. So the whole thing collapsed in around 95. And um, after that, I went back to rank organisation and became a cinema manager and uh, worked my way up to to become general manager in Leicester Square, doing all the big premieres and everything. So with that job, I actually had quite a lot of leave. So I was able to travel to Belgrade to see friends. I was able to travel again all over the country, Ljubljana. And so for me, it was very interesting seeing how things became privatised, became uh, more open, more discussions, more private cafes. But the other thing that was the sort of increase in privatisation, but also poverty as well, because at that stage, because of the change, because everybody had been looked after in the socialist system, and this change to capitalism sort of shook everything up. So the first sort of five years or so were quite difficult and to changing the systems and changing how administration was done so that that was a challenging period i was fascinated by um the interview that you had with total creation news and i'll, I'll put a link uh, to where any uh, in the description to this podcast where anybody uh is listening to it so that they can see exactly what i'm i'm talking about you were asked there about in the tourist situation today, uh, even though it is, yes, post-COVID, as we record this, uh, in Croatia. But I saw so many huge similarities between that and here in Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is a country, let's not, let's cut to the chase, that is almost on its knees now. 
you know, it, it is struggling uh, every which way. But has this jewel, they have this diamond in their hands of one of the most beautifulest countries uh, that there is with not only stunning scenery, but amazing history, a place where three cultures collide together. It's, it's a tourist designer's, I don't know, it, dream, really. And you were saying you had some criticisms, I think, about uh, the way Croatia is doing it and some suggestions for how people could possibly encourage tourism. I think whatever your uh, comments were about Croatia resonates very much here. So, you know, how do you see it now? I mean, there you were as a, an Englishman in Croatia, former Yugoslavia all those years ago, getting people to motivate themselves to become more open, to take a few risks. For example, let's go to Medjugorje or, or let's keep the winter tourism going and everything like that. What are your thoughts from what you see and, uh, and what you hear and read now? about this area, tourism-wise? For me, Bosnia-Herzegovina is an absolutely stunning... I have managed to travel through a good part of it, Sarajevo, and around when I was doing the coach tours, and I saw the the remarkable scenery and how beautiful... And people now are very interested in nature, environmental issues, walking, uh, being outdoors... And Bosnia-Herzegovina has all that. And it could really, if, if there was a good marketing campaign and also good um, connections to the outside world, um, then uh, tourism, I'm sure, would, would start picking up. Because when people go there and see the wonderful nature and the fantastic fresh food, um, you know, it, it's really, really really big i mean one of the things i mentioned <laughs> was that um, which has become during covid weirdly popular in the uk is fresh water swimming in the outdoors all year round so people are going into lakes and rivers and going for a nice swim um i might think they're a bit mad but it's actually a very popular thing and and that's something even there's so many lovely rivers and everything in Bosnia that that could be an opportunity to promote. There are there are lots of small things that would fill a plane up. So different groups interested in different things, archaeology, history, hiking, walking. And that's how I used to do it when I worked at Yat, is, is find lots of these small groups of people interested in small things. And before you knew it, you had a full plane. I totally agree. Where we are in the north of the country, the the um, the entity called the Republika Srpska, uh, tourism uh, Republika Srpska has produced uh, two tourism videos. Uh, I have to say they are quite fantastic, uh, and they have won um, awards at tourism fairs, international tourism fairs around the world. Um, but when I talk about this locally. Uh, I get looked at in such a weird way. And I said, you spent all this money on these two fantastic films, but where's the footfall? Where are the people coming? And it seems that institutionally, um, they, don't, they don't get it. There's this, I, I would say you've spent hundreds of thousands of euros on two films. You could have used that money to attract people to come. And as you say, especially today's world with Facebook and everything else, for you, if you go back now, if you'd had Facebook back in the day, you could have found these little groups a lot easier than you could do back then, right? Yes, 
Absolutely. I mean, I worked through lots of independent travel agents. That was the only way you could do it then. And um, I went to um, to tourism travel market. I kept an eye out for any unusual things. And, and basically, uh, the company would for me would produce small brochures and everything. I didn't spend a lot of money, but I managed to generate business that um, that, that kept the seats full during the winter. And uh, also the other factor, during that time, um, because it was self-management, people couldn't be really unemployed. So they had to work, but they had to run the planes, they had to uh, run things. And in that way, you had to try and fill them up. So there was a, there was a constant... Um, promotion like can we find something to fill this plane can we do this can we do that can we fill the hotel so there was a constant sort of drive to to achieve things which i, I feel sometimes now is is a bit lacking it, it's sort of not quite there as it used to be you see you could do that all over again now in a second career because uh, being online and in a virtual environment i mean you could most probably achieve all those things that all those dreams that you had years and years ago. We've been hit badly as the whole world has with COVID. And for me, I haven't travelled out of the country outside BIH for nearly two years now. And I'm, I'm looking forward at least to go and see some of my family that are back in, in the, the, the UK. Are you planning on coming back? Is it still in your blood? Don't because I, I, parcel. <laughs> I'll bring you a food parcel, don't worry. Do you suffer uh, the same as I do, which is once the Balkans has bit you, you can never, you can never get rid of it. It's a bit like the Hotel California; you can check out, but you can never leave. Plans to come back? Yes, um, uh, absolutely. I'm totally bitten by that part of the world and uh, desperate to to come back um, if I can. Uh, I'm lucky because I have a another passport, so I don't have to worry about. Uh, EU problems so eventually hopefully I can I can come back and live somewhere safely and uh, and uh, uh, and happily because I've lots of friends there who I've missed terribly and uh, yeah definitely want to get back it, it's it's the food the friendliness and um, and just the people the people themselves are just ah something special Martin thank you very much for giving me your time today it's been quite eye-opening uh, and enlightening and I can't wait to meet up IRL which I believe young people say is in real life not only to put the world to right but um, <laughs> to mine that uh, extensive tourism uh, experience uh, that you have because I'm getting the the feeling that although I said I would never do this it frustrates me so much these days that I'm thinking well if you won't do it then I'll, I'll, I'll have to do it for you but that's for a conversation when we meet in real life thanks so much for taking the time today as i say and also for being uh, an amazing supporter of um, what tamara and i are, are generating uh, for the world from here in the village i hope that people hook onto it and and say i i want to see some of this i want a bit of this action yes it's a most brilliant country to go and visit so please go and visit bosnia herzegovina it's fresh air fresh mountains fresh food and Tamara's cooking, which I really want to try.
So that's it for this episode. Our podcast is available on all major podcast platforms. And if you like this podcast, then please do leave us a review or send us an email. Thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you would like to support us and the production of future episodes, then please consider maybe giving us a tip or becoming a member of our podcast family. The link to do that is in the show notes for this podcast. Thanks again for listening. We really do appreciate it. To find out more about us and where we live, why not check out our blog at anenglishmaninthebalkans.com.